Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the precious gift of having your word here before us this morning. Lord, we pray that you may help us to understand what you wrote through your apostle, Peter. And Lord, we pray that we may not just treat these words this morning as Peter's words, but as your word. And may they shape us, change us, help us overcome the sinful desires that we have in our lives so that we live for righteousness and not for unrighteousness. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, over the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at 1 Peter, chapter 2, and we've been looking at the subject of suffering. And so one week we looked at the subject of suffering in the context of uh, as an employee with an employer, as slaves with masters. And then we looked at another week how unjust suffering is part of the calling of the Christian. And then last week we looked at how do you endure unjust suffering? Who's your how-to guide? And we saw that Jesus Christ is the how-to guide on enduring unjust suffering. We're meant to follow his example. This week we're going to look at the last, and this is our last week on the subject of unjust suffering, and we're going to look at the results of unjust suffering. Because the results of suffering are very important. The results of unjust suffering are often the motivation for why we willingly suffer anything. Why do we do something that is painful? Well, it's because we want the result. And so at the moment, one of the most painful things in my life is being a father and being sleep-deprived. It is starting to catch up with me more and more. So please pray for me and that I am getting adequate sleep because it is suffering at the moment for me. I have taken on the responsibilities of looking after our older child, Joshua, and uh, and so that means of a morning I'm the one that has to get up. It means that uh, when he wakes up and in the night... I'm the one that has to go down to him and settle him if he's crying. And the other night, uh, he woke up, he usually doesn't wake up at all, uh, but since I've been on duty, he seems to wake up more often, or maybe he's just he's perceived that way. But the other night, he woke up once, went down, settled him, just basically tell him, shut up, go to sleep, and put him back down, and he went to sleep for 40 minutes. Then he woke up again, and he's never done that before. Went down, stop being silly, go to sleep. And I go back to bed, and then 40 minutes later, cried again. This time his mother, before I went down, said, check what's wrong with him, whether he's got a dirty nappy, whether um, there's something going on that, uh, that you need to address. So I actually put a light on, sat with him. What's wrong? Calm down. Kept pointing at the wardrobe, which was a jar. And usually Jill apparently shuts that wardrobe. I didn't know this. And so, yeah, and he watches Monsters, Inc., so I'm not surprised that he might have been concerned that a monster was going to jump out of the wardrobe. So I shut the wardrobe door and put him back down, and then he slept. But it was suffering for me to keep getting woken up every 40 minutes. The, the, the second time, I was actually, you know, really into a deep sleep again. The first time I didn't hear him, Jill had to poke me and say, he's crying, go down. The, the second time, I, was, I, was, I had the ability to fly. I was floating through the air. It was a really good dream. And I was eating gelato at the same time. And then, and then this cry comes out and drags me back from the wonderful experience that I was having in my dreams. And so it's suffering. It was painful. So why do I do it all? 
What are the results of this suffering that I'm experiencing of sleep deprivation? I mean, this is what they do to people in torture camps, isn't it? They, they sleep deprive the person until they crack. What is the result? Well, we have the blessing of the ch- child in the home. And there will be more and more blessings that come as he gets older, and these, these types of suffering will change to other forms of suffering, I'm sure. But it all is worthwhile. The other day, I'm, I come home early, and I'm sitting there with him and, uh, and just turning off his little laptop computer, and he keeps turning it back on. I go, no, and turn it off in a fun voice, and he's just giggling like crazy. And it's that kind of moment that you go, yeah, it kind of is worth all the sleep deprivation, the suffering. There's a result that I'm getting from having a child, and it truly is a blessing. So what about Jesus' unjust suffering that he experiences, his suffering? Were there any results from his suffering? Or was it all pain and there was nothing good coming through his death? Well, that's what I want to look at this morning, and we'll be concentrating on verses 24 and 25 as we look at Jesus' unjust suffering and the results that came from it. So I've got two main points this morning. The first one is, and it's on the back of the church bulletin if you want to uh, follow along. My first main point is looking at the results of Jesus' suffering. And the first thing that we see that Jesus' suffering results in is a bearing of sin. Verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Jesus' suffering was like no other suffering that has ever occurred in the history of man. He was bearing our sins when he suffered. The result of his suffering is sin being put upon him. Our sins Christians' sins being put upon him. This verse is teaching us about the substitutionary atonement. Substitutionary, substitution, that he becomes a substitute for us and atones for our sins. He bears our sins at the cross there. And we've got to be careful with the word bear because some people, some theologians, latch onto this and say, ah, he didn't take the sins into him. He didn't absorb the punishment. They say he bore the sins as in he carried the sins somewhere else. No, he bore our sins. He took them on himself. The word himself shows up in verse 24. See there? He himself bore our sins. And that's there in the Greek. The extra pronoun is put there for emphasis that he took our sins. He didn't take them somewhere. He took them onto himself. And bore our sins. The punishment for our sins was put upon him. What was that punishment? Well, that punishment was a physical punishment. He, he took that punishment on his body. What does it say, verse 24? He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. His body took the sins. This counteracts teaching of some people that... Jesus just appeared to have a human body. It's a form of teaching called docetism. Likeness, it comes from the word for for being like. So he looked like a human, but he wasn't truly human. What does Peter say? What does God say in his word here? He bore our sins, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. 
He had a real human body. Jesus was 100% human. And at the cross, he took our sins on his body. The physical punishment that he received was real and genuine. And that is the physical punishment that you should have received for your sins. But instead, he took that punishment for you. And what else is unpacked in that statement of him taking our sins? He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Why tree? Why is tree mentioned there? Why does he say tree? Why doesn't he say cross? There is a word for cross in the Greek, and it's used throughout the New Testament, but it's not used here. Why does he say tree? Because I think Peter wants us to remember what we read in Deuteronomy 21. That cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. There were stipulations in the Jewish law that you did not leave a body hanging on a tree overnight because whoever was killed as a, for capital punishment and hung on a tree is cursed. And Jesus didn't just die a death of pain in his body, but he also died a cursed death. He had spiritual anguish. He took the punishment of eternity in hell for the punishment of your sins upon himself. He died cursed by God. That is the result of Jesus' suffering. His suffering, his unjust suffering, has a tremendous result in that he bore sins in his body and mentally, spiritually, he was cursed by God. That's point number one. He bore our sins. The punishment for sin is taken. Secondly, Jesus' suffering results in a life of righteousness. What does he say there? He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. What happens as a result of Jesus' death? Well, you die to sin through Jesus and live a life of righteousness. That means the punishment of sin dies with you because it died with Jesus. You die with Jesus, so the punishment is taken. And it also means that sin starts dying off in your life. That the sins that you cherish so much start to die because you, those sins, are dying with Jesus Christ at the cross. Until you eventually reach heaven where sin in you is completely killed off and you are completely dead to sin for eternity in heaven. And then what happens? Well, you're able to live for righteousness. It's not like you die to sin and then you go into neutral territory. No, you live for righteousness so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. So this answers that common objection that people have to Christianity and when they understand that the gospel is all about grace and not about works. People say, how can that be? You mean the only thing I need to get into heaven is simply repent of my sins and believe that Jesus died? That it's not about what I do, it's what about, what ha- about what has been done in Jesus Christ? They say, that's crazy. If that's true, then I can sin as much as I like Say sorry, Jesus forgives it, and I can keep going sinning. No one would do anything right if that was the case, if the gospel was really true, they say. But here we're told that that is not 
what Christianity is about. Jesus doesn't die, take the punishment for your sins so that you can go out and live a decadent lifestyle and sin as much as you want. No, he dies so that you can die to sin and live for righteousness. That instead of sinning, you now live for what is right. Jesus doesn't go through that painful suffering, that curse by God, so that you can heap more sin upon him. No, he does it so that you can live for righteousness, that you can start doing what is right and not what is wrong. So that's number two. Jesus' suffering results in a life of righteousness. Third thing that Jesus' suffering results in is a healing. Verse 24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Something was happening at the cross that is quite profound. A healing was taking place. We as humans are sick. We have a disease, and it's called sin. And it's evident in our lives in lots of ways. The guilt you feel when your conscience kicks in, when you do something wrong, it's part of your sickness. You're feeling the sickness of sin, and that guilt can weigh you down. You can feel it in your bones. You can feel the oppressive nature of it, and that's part of the sickness of sin in your life. And sin brings other sicknesses. It brings bodily sicknesses. A clear example of this kind of uh, suffering with sin, the disease of sin, is sexual immorality. Sexually transmitted diseases come if you're sexually immoral and they hurt your body. They're AIDS epidemic. It hurts you so much that it kills you off. Certain sins come with certain illnesses that are quite well, the, the correlation is quite well there. Sin is a disease. Sin is a sickness and it eventually brings death. The reason we all die is because we're all sinners. If we did not sin, we wouldn't die. We'd live forever. But instead, we are sick. We have a disease, and it's called sin. Who's the doctor for our sin? Who's the one who can heal us? It was Jesus Christ. At the cross, the result of his suffering is that we are healed by his wounds. It's amazing. The doctor is hurt, and we get better. I don't know if your doctor does much of that. It would be if he didn't, um, if he didn't charge you for his time, he'd be hurt a little in that he wouldn't be um, uh, getting the benefit of healing you. But here we have it in a, a greater way that the doctor is actually hurt physically and spiritually so that you get better. He is the one that can take away the disease of sin. And so the spiritual sickness of the, the guilt that you feel when you become a Christian, it's healed. The guilt that you always feel about your sin, you know is taken. That sin has been removed through Jesus Christ. And you can have joy where you used to feel depressed about your life. You can rejoice now because you know that your sin is not counted against you any longer. It has been removed as far as the east is from the west. 
And so you can rejoice. And so you don't behave like a sick person anymore. You behave like a well person. You're a healed person because the guilt has been removed. And those diseases that come through certain sinful practices, you can overcome them now. Through Jesus' death, you have the ability to live righteously now. So things like sexual immorality, you can abstain from that. You can be faithful to your husband or wife instead. And so sexually transmitted diseases, they aren't going to come your way. Because by Jesus' suffering, you have the ability to be healed of that disease, of sickness, of sin in your life. And so you don't do those sinful behaviours anymore. And that physical death that comes as a result of the disease of of sin, it's just a passageway to eternal life. That physical death is something you don't fear any longer. In fact, you start to look forward to it. You start to look forward to your own death. I mean, that flies contrary to what the world thinks. But that's what a reality is because it doesn't matter. Because the disease of sin that brings death has been conquered. The sting of death has been removed. And so it's just transportation vehicle from this life to the next one. And that next life is fantastic. It is wonderful. It is a life of complete wellness. You still have, you're still sick in some ways as a Christian. You still have that disease there. It hasn't been completely eradicated. But you're on the healing path and then one day you will be cured. And that cure will stay for eternity. That's a result of Jesus' death. A result of Jesus' suffering is by his wounds you have been healed. Fourthly, another result that Jesus gives us of his suffering is in verse 25. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The fourth result is that we return to the shepherd. You were going astray. You were all like sheep going astray, just meandering off course to destruction. But instead, now through Jesus' death, you have returned to the shepherd. You have returned to the good shepherd, Jesus Christ. And that brings great benefit. He guides you in the right way, but shepherds are always there to feed the sheep as well. So he continually feeds you so that you are strong and able to take on the entire world if needs be. And some Christians have done it. Man, Athanasius, he stood up for the divinity of Christ in the 300s and everyone was against him. And someone said to him, Athanasius, the whole world is against you. And he said, well, it's Athanasius against the whole world then. So be it. That's what we can do if we're a Christian because God feeds us as our shepherd so that we can do whatever needs be. That is a result of Jesus suffering at the cross. And then fifthly, the last one, for you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The fifth result of Jesus' suffering is that you return to the overseer. What's an overseer? Well, it's someone who oversees work. It's someone who's like a a guardian or a supervisor. The actual word in the Greek here and in old translations, they rightly translated it that way, uh, is bishop. 
So Episcopos, uh, which is why we call Anglicans Episcopalians. Well, they're Anglicans here in Australia, but Episcopalians in America because they have a bishop-led system of government and it comes from um, Episcopos. And the word Episcopos was just a word that was used for anyone who supervised something. So someone who was in charge of things to make sure that something was being accomplished rightly. And so the NIV, I think, has chosen to translate it overseer here to get back to that original meaning. Because if we put bishop here, you'd think, oh, a bishop, what, what's a bishop? I don't really understand. But we do know what an overseer is or a supervisor, don't we? It's someone who's in charge to make sure we're going rightly. And that's what happens through Jesus' death for Christians. We no longer go in a wrong direction and do things wrongly. Instead, we do things rightly because we have a bishop. We have an overseer watching over us, making sure everything happens the way it's supposed to happen. Just like at work, you have a boss, someone there who's making sure you're doing things properly. And if you're not, they guide you back. So here, no, this is the way you do it. And that's what we have with Jesus Christ. So the results of Jesus' suffering are immense. It wasn't an ordinary kind of suffering that was happening there at the cross. It was a kind of suffering that came with incredible results. And if you're not a Christian and you're here this morning, do you understand the results of Jesus' suffering for sinners like you? Recently I was speaking to a non-Christian who said, oh, I've read the Bible, and in it, it doesn't say anywhere about Jesus dying for sins. I said, well, you haven't read it very carefully then. I'd be interested that you have read the whole Bible or not. Because here, it says quite clearly that Jesus bore sins. He died for sinners. Do you understand that? Does everyone here this morning understand that? That you have gone astray, that you have a disease and it's called sin. And it brings guilt it brings physical pain and suffering, and it brings death. If you recognize that, I encourage you then to come to the one who can heal, the only one who can heal you. And that's Jesus Christ at the cross, bearing your sins for you. Come to him. He invites everyone who feels that way, who knows their sin, to come to him. Repent of their sins and believe that he died for them. And as soon as you do that, you get all the benefits of his death. He bears your sins in his body, on the tree. He is cursed for you. And you die to sin and you live for righteousness instead. You are healed by his wounds. You return to that shepherd and that overseer who then look after you. What about if you are a Christian? How is this helpful for you to look at this morning? Well, firstly, meditate upon the fact of Jesus' results, or the results of Jesus' suffering. We can't dwell upon this enough as a Christian. At the great benefit of his death for you, that he has borne your sin, he has given you life, he's healed you, he's returned you to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And this is then a great motivation to endure unjust suffering. As I said before, the results of suffering are often a great motivation for us to endure it. And here we have a great motivation here as we look at Jesus' suffering for us 
to suffer anything for him. Why would we not want to do whatever he asks of us when he has done this for us? It's incredible. It's easy as a Christian to start to think, oh yes, I know all this, and gloss over it. But he bore your sins and your punishment for eternity in hell. If he hadn't done this, the rest of your existence is very, very bad. But instead he has. And so we should as Christians just desire to please him in whatever way we can. And one of the ways he wants us to please him is by suffering unjustly, bearing insults, being like Jesus Christ. But the other way we can look at this passage for our motivation for us is as an example to follow of bringing life to people. Because remember, we were told that we're meant to look at Jesus' suffering as an example. And so that's the context of this passage. Uh, Back if we go to verse 21. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. So how do we bring people to have their sins forgiven through our unjust suffering? Well, we do. When we suffer unjustly, people can become Christians. They don't become Christians because we bear their sins like Jesus bore their sins, and so we experience hell for them, so they become Christians. But as we suffer unjustly, and people recognize that we're doing it because we're a Christian, they then get attracted to Christianity and become Christians because they see that this is something that people actually die for. This is something that people will endure great suffering for. And so they find out more, they find out about Jesus' death, and they have Jesus die for them. They repent and believe as well. And this has happened again and again in church history, where people see someone suffer immensely, and then they become a Christian as well. And I just want to give one example from church history. So this comes from a man who died in 258 uh, AD. I was going to say BC, but 258. And he's known as St. Lawrence. And uh, I'll read from this book, Fox's Book of Martyrs. It's a good book to read. Um, basically, it goes through, um, it was written in the 1500s by a man called Fox. And uh, he's just listed all these stories about different martyrs, different people who've died for the faith. And he gives an example of uh, Lawrence dying for the faith here. So this is a man who's enduring unjust suffering. He writes, The Christian Church of Rome, even at this early period, had its treasury, considerable riches, both in money and in gold and silver vessels used at the services of the church. All these treasures were under the watchful eye of Lawrence, the archdeacon. Besides maintaining its clergy, the church supported many poor widows and orphans, nearly 1,500 of these poor people whose names Lawrence kept upon his list, lived upon the charity of the church. So the church is rich, but it's got a lot of poor people that they're helping. Sums of money were also constantly needed to help struggling churches which had been newly established in distant parts of the world. Macrianus, governor of Rome under the emperor Valerian, had heard of these riches and longed to seize them. He therefore sent soldiers to arrest Lawrence, who was soon taken and dragged before the governor. As soon as Macrianus's pitiless eyes rested upon the prisoner, he said harshly, I hear that you who call yourselves Christians possess treasures of gold and silver, and that your priests use golden vessels at your services. Is this true? 
Lawrence answered, the church indeed has great treasures. Then bring those treasures forth, said Mark and Anus. Do not use your, do not your sacred books tell you to render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's? The emperor has need of those riches for the defense of the empire, therefore you must render them up. After reflecting deeply for a few moments, Lawrence replied, in three days I will bring before you the greatest treasures of the church. This answer satisfied the governor, so Lawrence was set free and Marcrianus impatiently awaited the time when the expected stores of gold and silver should be placed before him. On the appointed day, Marcrianus, attended by his officers, came to the place where the Christians usually assembled. They were calmly received by Lawrence at the entrance and invited to pass into an inner room. Are the treasures collected? was the first question of Marcrianus. They are, my lord, replied Lawrence. Will you enter and view them? With these words, he opened a door and displayed the astound- to the astounded gaze of the governor the poor pensioners of the church, a chosen number, a row of the lame, a row of the blind, orphans and widows, the helpless and the weak. Astonished by the sight, the governor turned fiercely upon Lawrence, saying, What mean you by this mockery? Where are the treasures of gold and silver you promised to deliver up? These that you see before you, replied the undaunted Lawrence, are the true treasures of the church. In the widows and orphans you behold her gold and her silver, her pearls and precious stones. These are her real riches. Make use of them by asking for their prayers. They will prove your best weapons against your foes. Enraged and disappointed at not securing the hope for gold, the governor furiously commanded his guards to seize Lawrence and take him to a dungeon. There, terrible to relate, a great fire was built upon the stone floor and a huge gridiron placed upon it. Then the martyr was stripped of his clothing and thrown upon this fiery bed to slowly perish in the scorching heat. The cruel tyrant gazed down upon this dreadful sight to gratify his hatred and revenge, but the martyr had strength and spirit to triumph over him even to the last. Not a murmur escaped him, but with his dying breath he prayed for the Christian church at Rome and for the conversion of the entire empire to God, and so lifting up his eyes to heaven, he gave up the ghost." A Roman soldier named Romanus, who looked on at the sufferings of St. Lawrence, was so much affected by the martyr's courage and faith that he became a convert to Christianity. As soon as this was known, the soldier was severely whipped and afterwards beheaded. That soldier was saved as a result of witnessing a Christian's unjust suffering. And yet it can be the same for you. You probably won't die this kind of death. But you are called to suffer day in, day out, in different ways for Christ. People will hurl insults at you. They will say all kinds of things to you. And you endure them, and you don't know who is watching and observing And who can become a Christian as a result? Follow Jesus' example of enduring unjust suffering so that people live, so that people's wounds are healed through Jesus' wounds at the cross. Do you suffer unjustly so that people may come to enjoy the results of Jesus' unjust suffering? I pray that you do. Let us speak with him now. Heavenly Father, we thank you 
for this tremendous statement from your word about the results of Jesus' unjust suffering, that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that by his wounds we are healed. Lord, we pray for anyone in this room this morning who is not a Christian. We pray that they may recognise the disease that is in them, the sin that they have, and the pain that that brings, and the eternal pain that it brings. Lord, we pray that they may look to Jesus and embrace the results of his suffering so that they can live for righteousness and be dead to sin. Lord, we pray for us as Christians. We pray that we may endure unjust suffering so that people are attracted to Jesus Christ and his unjust suffering. May we be like your child, Lawrence, who went to his death for you. May we be prepared to do the same if we are called to do so. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.